rest of you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We said last week that we were going to pick back up uh, the book of Ephesians, and so we'll be in that today, and then the next two weeks uh, we'll be jumping out again. Um, Matt James will be preaching next week. Very excited. No one's going to clap for Matt. Come on. There you go. And, uh, and then Chris Mack will be in the pulpit the following week, and, and then we'll be back in the book of Ephesians um, to, get, uh, to finish up our study of the book of Ephesians. And today we're in chapter 5. Well, uh, this past week, Whitney and I were able to get away and go to Tennessee for four days, just the two of us. It's a great trip, really, really helpful and restful. And on the way there and on the way back, I've been talking about this podcast a lot with Whitney, and so finally she was like going to listen to it with me. So I re-listened to the whole thing, and we listened to this uh, podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And uh, this podcast has been really interesting for me personally because of uh, my own sort of self-introspection on um, the story of Mars Hill, and uh, it's a church that was in Seattle, uh, pastored by uh, Mark Driscoll, and the way in which that church and his teaching was influential for me as a young believer, and then the church sort of collapsed, and he was removed from uh, leadership for abusing power and bullying and all sorts of things, and the, the podcast is kind of uh, examining all of these things, and it's been a journey for me personally in examining my own life and ministry and ways in which I was affected by this and ways in which I embraced things that I shouldn't have embraced and, and just kind of wrestling through those things and trying to grow from it. Well, in episode four of the podcast, I do recommend uh, anyone who wants to dive into it. It's a really well done podcast as well. And so um, I think there's nine episodes out now. So if you haven't listened to it, you got some catching up to do. It's like nine hours, um, but it's really well worth it. Um, it is really well done. And in episode four, they are examining the culture of masculinity at the church. And uh, they interview someone uh, named Jen Schmidt, who is a part of the church. And uh, she talked about the culture of masculinity and said this. It took the pressure off of women. It was really hard on men, and they would be saddled and burdened with the responsibility of you are responsible for the spiritual maturity and tone of everybody in your home. In one way, it took the responsibility off of women, which we should have had, but it also erased our own dignity and humanity, and I didn't see that at the time. This culture of masculinity at the church ended up erasing women's dignity and value and worth, took away their responsibility and their agency. And in many ways... Uh, the text that we're going to look at today has contributed to that at lots of churches. The text that we're going to look at today has had its abuses, has been abused to minimize and to discredit and to ignore and even erase women. And so we're going to enter in with a lot of trepidation today into this text. We want to be faithful to what God says and we want to know Really, what, what does this text mean for us, and how do we understand it, and how do we enter into it well together, and also know that it has been abused, for sure, and avoid those things. So I'm going to pray for us one more time as we get into this text this morning, uh, as it is a weighty topic for us to wade into. Father, we do pray that you would speak. Lord, we want to trust your word, 
We want to come near to only your word and hear only from you. So God, would you work powerfully as your word goes out? Would you transform? Would you be gracious? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to give a little bit of context as we get into this passage. And so we're really going to be starting in 21, but I want to read back a little bit because I think it's important for us uh, to, to understand the context of where we're at. So starting in verse 15, Paul says this, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your, your husbands as to the Lord. For, for a husband is the head of a, his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Is that where we end? Yep, that is where we end. All right. I was like, it's mid-sentence. That's intentional. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, So I wanted to read the whole passage and give a little bit of context because I think some of the ways this passage has been abused is it's kind of just drawn out of Paul's whole argument. So actually, when we get to the text that we want to start with, which is uh, 21, you want to go to the next one, 21? And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's hard to see quite what's going on here in the English translation, but verse 21 here uh, starts with a a participle, which is an ing verb, right? Like singing which we just saw before. And it actually is connected to what Paul has said earlier, right? So Paul says, be filled with the spirit by singing, right? By giving thanks and by submitting to one another. Like those three are all in line with submit to the spirit. Now it's really hard to translate Paul into English because he just like writes in these run on sentences forever. And so you're Bible would be really hard to read if we just translate it. So the translators definitely have to make decisions. But what's important to recognize here is that what Paul is saying about submitting, whenever we get to that, right, is connected to being filled with the Spirit. Okay, so that's the first thing that we got to know as we get into the context of this passage. But also, some of your translations, uh, depending on what translation you're using, has a paragraph break between 21 and 22. And some of them have it between 20 and 21, right? So the NLT that we preach from here has a paragraph break between 20 and 21, which is hard because that verb is kind of connected, right? That submitting is connected to 20. But what's also hard is if you break it between 21 and 22, like uh, the ESV or other translations do, it makes it seem like this submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is disconnected from wives submit to your own husbands, You see that? Now, I want to tell you something, right? Your Bible is trustworthy. Absolutely. Also, the paragraph, like, breaks and the headings are not inspired. (laughs) They're, like, those are editor translation choices, right? To give you some guidance of where things are going. And those are made by other decisions, right? Not 
They're not in the original text. So those are not a part of the scripture. Right? So it's just really important as you read the scriptures, you have to come to your own decisions and your own conclusions about what the text is saying and not just simply trust what the translator has said this heading means. Right? Here's why this is really, really important. We cannot disconnect this whole passage about gender and husbands and wives from submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so often those are pulled apart, and this is seen as this totally different section. Here's what's crazy, guys. In verse 22, the word, uh, we'll, we'll get to 22 in a second, but in 22, right, for wives, this means submit to your husbands. The word submit is actually not in the Greek in verse 22. There's no verb. There's no verb at all. It pulls its verb from 21. So if you have a hard paragraph break there, you don't actually know what you're supposed to do. It just says for wives to your own husbands. And you're like, okay, that doesn't make any sense, right? It actually pulls its verb from 21, from submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's why that's super important. If we disconnect those two things, we will make errors in applying both of them, all right? So we want to connect those two things to each other, okay? Everyone tracking with me? We're going like deep dive into Greek here. So everyone okay? All right. I didn't put any Greek on the screen. So in prepping this, I actually had to get out my like Greek textbook and like look at stuff again because it was like, man, I'm a little rusty on this. I got I to gotta look up some stuff. So, but this is really important because if you'll go back to 21 and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we got to get this right first if we're going to understand the rest of the passage and what Paul's point is, all right? So what does it mean for us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Well, this is the result of being filled with the Spirit as a community. As the church, we are to be filled with God's Spirit and to love one another and to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Which means we need to have humility in how we interact with one another. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ means that we have humility. We can be challenged by other people in this community. We will actually submit to the the opinions and thoughts and uh, uh, advice of one another. That's going to take humility. It means that everyone in our community has dignity, value, and worth. It means that we're going to listen to one another, listen to everyone, men and women, across racial, cultural, and ethnic lines, and across socioeconomic lines, we're going to listen to each other. If you are a brother or sister in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus, we submit to one another. Now, That includes me, right? The Bible definitely talks about submitting to your leaders, submitting to elders, absolutely. But that does not supersede this text, which says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Meaning I submit to you as a brother in Christ. And that is primary for us to be able to function as a body together. Anyone has the ability, if you are a brother or sister in Christ, to call out sin in anyone else, to challenge, to exhort, to encourage, and to love. 
We talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? All the one another's of scripture. If we're to be a body together, we need to do life together and, and perform all these one another's to each other. Exhort one another, love one another, care for one another, call out one another. All of those things have to be true for us. And that's really where Paul is. Remember, on the heels of the, Paul is on the heels of talking about the body of Christ. How does the body function? He's continuing this metaphor of the body. You are not your own, but you are actually now a part of a body and belong to the Lord Jesus. And we can't do that together. We can't be a body together with a bunch of prideful individual Christians. We have to submit to one another. To use this text, to use the the rest of this text, 22 through 33, to abuse power is crazy. Now, the idea of Christians abusing power should not surprise us because of the pervasiveness of sin, right? We need to have some humility of like, yeah, I'm a sinner and I'm capable of abusing power if it was mine to have. We all think, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, we're not in the same situation. So actually in the same situation, I might do that <laughs> if I had the, the power. But we should also be shocked by it because the gospel upends power. If we're to really understand how the gospel is at work in a community, it ought to upend those things. And we ought to have humility and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everyone needs to learn how to submit to one another. This text is so often used in a way that ignores ignores large sections of the church. Single folks, widows, those who are divorced. But it's also unfortunate because as we'll see, the whole point of what Paul is saying in this passage is to mutually submit to one another and be the bride of Christ together as our primary calling. Only secondarily does Paul address specific situations. The primary calling, as we're going to see as we walk through this, is for us to be the bride of Christ together, which means we need to be mutually submissive to one another. Now, he is going to address specific situations, absolutely. But we need to do that within the context of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, let's get back to 22 through 30. He does begin now to talk about specific situations in which this applies, right? So, the the way the NLT uh, translates this, for wives, this means submit to your own husbands. I think that's actually really helpful and good. So how you mutually submit to one another for wives, this is one way in which you do this, right? Because the verb, remember, is pulled from 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, 
but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. All right, we're going to stop there for a moment. This text, to us, feels very antiquated, right? It feels kind of like it doesn't fit culturally. And yet, to the original readers of this text, it was countercultural in a totally different way. It was countercultural in a totally different way because Rome was an incredibly patriarchal society. So for Paul to address wives and to address husbands, telling them to love their wives, for Paul to give agency to women in the passage, addressing wives, and to tell husbands a lot more that you are required to do was absolutely countercultural. If you compare it to anything similar in the ancient world at this time, you you don't find one-to-one comparisons. Like Paul is just borrowing from what everyone else would do and what everyone else would say. Paul is incredibly countercultural here by affirming the mutual submission of husband and wife in 21 and by addressing wives and husbands in the way that they do. Now, to understand what this passage means for wives and husbands, we need to understand what it does not mean. Notice how this passage does not say, women, submit to men in all circumstances. It just doesn't say that, right? Does it say that? So why do people say that it says that? Because it doesn't say that, (laughs) right? We need to own the text and be connected to the text. Does the text say that? It doesn't. It does not say that. It does not apply to all women in all circumstances and all men in all circumstances. I've said this before as we've talked about leadership within City Hope. If, if you're volunteering and you're on a team, there might be a woman who leads that team at this church. And if you're a man, you do not like all of a sudden start leading that team because the leader is a woman. Like that's not how that works. This says nothing about women being CEOs or presidents or anything like that just doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything about a wife not having the capability as a female to lead or to uh, the intelligence to lead. It just doesn't say any of those things. And so to interpret it in such a way to make it say those things is an abuse of the text. It has a very specific, narrow connotation. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It also does not condone or allow any form of abuse in marriage. It does not. Again, it does not demand absolute obedience. If we are to understand this passage, we need to understand that we cannot take one part of Scripture and use it to disobey another part of Scripture. Right? Scripture has to interpret itself. So if the way in which we obey this passage breaks a whole lot of other things, we're doing this one wrong. Does that make sense? Right? So if, and especially if it's like the verse before, (laughs) submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like, if we're not doing that, you can't be doing this right. Does that make sense? So we have to understand this within that context. We cannot use one part of Scripture to disobey another part of Scripture. The Lord is not pleased by any form of marital abuse. Spiritual, physical, mental, emotional. 
The Lord is not pleased by it. It is sinful. It can and does happen, and it is sinful and requires repentance and change and growth. And this passage does not mean that wives are stuck in situations of abuse and cannot get out. That's not what this means. This passage also does not mean that a wife cannot challenge her husband if he's in sin. Mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You have to be able to obey that. Have to be able to utilize your dignity and agency as a sister in Christ with your husband And your primary calling and relationship with one another is brother and sister in Christ. And secondarily, wife and husband. I'll get to that in a moment. I'm I'm jumping ahead. Sorry, I'm getting excited. We can't use one part of Scripture to disobey another part of Scripture. Mutual submission and partnership comes before headship and submission. And we see this actually in other places in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7.4 says this. This is in the context of of speaking about sexuality and in the context of speaking about sexuality as it plays out within the context of marriage. It says the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. And the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. Like, those are mutual. In marriage, you do not have authority over yourself. Your spouse does. Exercise properly. Right? Not abuse, right? That's already, that's not okay. That's not how that works, right? Paul is speaking here of an ideal in which there is love and fellowship and communion and joy and those following Jesus together. He's not speaking about every circumstance. He, he, he just can't do that, right? He's speaking about this is how it works in an ideal. And so we have to understand that there are other places in Scripture that we can go to find what happens when it's not an ideal. Paul actually gives us some of that in 1 Corinthians, right? If a wife was to come to know Jesus and her husband does not believe in Jesus, if he's willing to stay married to you, great. If he's not and abandons you, it's, it's okay that you follow Jesus. That's actually more important, right? So Paul actually already gives space for things like that. So we shouldn't interpret this as a universal, every situation, total, 100% absolute obedience. That would also break uh, our, uh, the commandment to have no other God before you but God. Only one person demands absolute obedience from you, and that's the Lord. And if there's ever any conflict between the Lord and a lesser, you follow the Lord, Right? Follow the Lord. Mutual authority is given and mutual submission is the norm. Galatians 3, 28 also says this. There is no longer Jew or Greek or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if we use the passage in Ephesians to destroy either of these passages, we're using it wrongly. Now, also, if we use either of these passages to destroy what Ephesians says, we're also using it wrongly, right? Scripture must interpret Scripture. What Paul is saying is, in the gospel, we are all equal before God, as sinners saved by grace. No matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter your gender, no matter your race or ethnicity, no matter your socioeconomic status or your status in this world, 
You all come and there is equality before the cross of Jesus Christ. That's foundational to anything, any good relationship in the church and foundational to any marriage. Any marriage that does not see equality with one another before God is not a marriage that will honor the Lord. It's very, very important. So, uh, but in light of that too, right? Like we don't see, we, we talk about this a lot here at City Hope, right? We don't see this passage destroying any distinction between Jew or Gentile, right? Like there is still distinction. You should come holy as yourself in all of your cultural and ethnic and racial being. Who you are is really important. This doesn't erase it as though we're like becoming this amorphous thing where we don't have any distinctions, right? And this doesn't erase the distinctions of male and female. Male and female is actually super important. It's biblical. There are lots of distinctions between men and women that are important that we ought to honor and we don't honor men or women by ignoring those distinctions. But there is equality in dignity, value, and worth. Equality in the way in which we approach God and in the way in which we approach one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's primary. Now, if we get back to this, one way a wife mutually submits to, uh, uh, displays this mutual submission is submitting to her husband. Willingly, in an act of her own dignity, value, and volition, not coerced or commanded by her husband. It is an act of the will to lovingly submit to the godly leading of your husband. Again, the primary relationship is brother and sister in Christ, meaning speaking the truth in love, calling out sin, expressing your opinion, mutual partnership and love and respect and kindness ought to be displayed. And yet there is this command to submit to your own husband as he is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. That there is some leadership component to a marriage in a family. That Christ is to represent and be the head of the church, and that the husband is to lead and have spiritual authority in the home, to lead well and to lead like Christ, and we'll see that in just a moment. But what, what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband in that? I want to say a couple of things about that. First, it has to be different in every culture. Each culture is going to look different for what headship and submission looks like. And the Bible is a document for people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, right? Meaning, if we too narrowly define what submission and headship looks like so that it's not applicable in all cultures, we're probably defining it too narrowly, right? And making a a universal principle out of a cultural application. So that's really important for us to see. Marriages in the first century between a husband and wife and marriages today can both have headship and submission and look radically different. That's okay. Also, You'll notice in the text it says, wives, submit to your own husband. Meaning this is a relational dynamic that should also be unique to every couple because every couple is unique. What it looks like for each couple to have headship and submission should look somewhat different than 
every other couple. Because it's your own thing within your marriage before the Lord. And so we can't so like give you all of these, like I'm not going to give you all of these examples of like, hey, this is what it looks like and this is what it doesn't look like. Why? Because that's really hard to do. It's going to take like actually knowing you and knowing each other. But my hunch is you kind of know when the Spirit of God prompts you when you're disobeying that. You kind of know where the Spirit of God is going to prompt you to say, actually, I do have some rebellion here. I actually don't want to submit. I actually don't want to lead. I actually am not going to do this. And how are we going to know that? Only if we are mutually submissive to one another as a church. Only if we are a community together that knows each other well enough to know what it looks like in our, in our lives. This is a radical call for us to know and to be known so that we can experience that together as God's family. When we do, uh, when Whitney and I do premarital counseling for couples, we talk a, uh, about this a little bit and talk through what does it look like for you. But most of our premarital counseling is just getting to know the couple and their family of origin and who they are and all these things to figure out, hey, what is marriage going to look like for you two? Because it's going to look different. And we spend a ton of time talking about totally different things with every couple. Right, Whit? <laughs> yeah. Because every couple is totally different. So if we're to dig into this, it's going to take some time to really get to know each other and to dig into what this means in this place, in this time, with this couple. Husbands. Paul goes on to say a lot about husbands. Husbands, if you ever read this passage to your wife demanding submission, well, you're disobeying this passage. You're disobeying actually what Jesus already tells you to do. And you're saying, submit to me. But that's actually not what Paul says. He says, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Jesus commands that, not you. Paul doesn't give you that kind of authority. Jesus holds that authority. Jesus holds authority over a wife to demand and command, just like he does everyone else, right? And he holds that authority over a husband. What Paul says here would have been radical in the Roman world. In the Roman world, wives were often viewed as property, not as someone to love and cherish. And Paul says, love your wives. Now, here's what's interesting, right? In 22, I said there's no verb. When Paul says, love your wives, he uses a verb. And when he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he uses a verb there too. So he doubles up verb there, but in submit, he doesn't use a verb. I I don't know what that means other than to say, Paul says when he repeats a verb, he means really do it. Probably also because husbands often are a little bit thick-headed. I am admitting myself to being a little bit thick-headed, right? I need to hear it twice. Love your wife. How? As Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? Does he exert his authority over the church? Does he demand? Is he harsh? Philippians 2 says this about Christ's love for the church. 
Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Gave up his divine privileges. Did not assert them. Any way in which this passage is used for husbands to assert some sort of position of privilege and authority and to kick back and be served is exactly not what it says. Jesus said he came to serve, not to be served. This is headship like Christ. Headship, leadership, authority, whatever word you choose here is not about a position of power and privilege, but a posture of serving and suffering and love. Laying down your preferences for your wife's joy and good and holiness, and wholeness. Laying down your preferences, not demanding your preferences. That's what leadership like Christ looks like. Laying down your power and privilege to lift up, to honor, to care for, and adore your wife. Because that's what Jesus does for you. Amy Bird, in her book, Uh, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This is a really good book. Uh, Amy Bird's a great theologian. Um, How the Church Needs to Rediscover Her Purpose. It's really, really helpful. I highly recommend this. Really, really good. Um, She is uh, a member in the OPC, uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, so kind of a a similar denomination to what we are. Uh, Holds a lot of similar theological beliefs, and this book is just really, really helpful. She says this, in Scripture we don't find that our ultimate goal is as narrow as biblical manhood or biblical womanhood, but complete, glorified resurrection to live eternally with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't find a command anywhere in Scripture for all women to submit to all men. We don't find directions for women to function as masculinity affirmers. We find that men and women are called together in the same mission, eternal communion with the triune God. Both men and women are to pursue the same virtues as we await our ultimate blessedness, the beatific vision to behold Christ. Here's the question, brothers and sisters, today. What's the ultimate point of this passage for Paul? Because we haven't touched it yet. Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This last phrase here, uh, so again I say, it's, it, the, the Greek word is pulls this like, nevertheless. Like Paul gets super excited about something else and he's like, oh yeah, I was talking about marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in marriage, do this. But he's really excited about something else. He's really, he gets really excited about this idea of Christ and his church. Friends, this is the point. Marriage, it's a picture I was at uh, Logan and Darcy's wedding yesterday, and uh, uh, I, I didn't perform the wedding. Um, 
just got to attend, which was really, really fun. Uh, but often at weddings that I'm uh, officiating, I say to the folks that are gathered together, this is like a movie trailer. It's a preview. It's not the movie. If we make marriage the movie, the, the final thing, the most important thing, we're missing the whole point. Because the whole point is to point to something else. The whole point is to point to something far greater. If you are here today and you're unmarried and and maybe you have longed for marriage, or if you're single and loving singleness, or if you're married and feel like it's unfulfilling, or if you're married and loving it, or if you're divorced, or if you've been abused by a spouse and marriage is a hard topic, or if you have divorce in your family and marriage brings up bad memories, wherever you are, the point of this passage is still for you. The point of this passage is still for you. You need to know what Paul pictures here is this ideal picture because he uses Jesus and the church as the ideal the best version of marriage. And here's what Paul is saying. Even in the ideal, even in the best version of marriage where the husband is loving his wife as he loves his own body, caring for her, seeing her dignity, value, and worth, loving her like Jesus loves the church. And the wife is submitting to her husband and loving her husband and still loving him as his sister in Christ and exerting her authority in that and Loving one another and talking through those things. And this beautiful partnership that exists. Even in the most ideal, you know what G, uh, Paul says? It's just a picture. It's just a picture of Jesus and his love for the church. It's just scratching the surface. Paul can't help but go on to this tangent about Jesus and his bride. And here's the thing, that's the ultimate point of this passage. You need to be filled with the Spirit so you can submit to one another and be the bride of Christ together. Men, the women of this church have much to teach us about what it means to be a bride. The ironic way in which this passage has been abused to push a hyper and toxic masculinity is that Paul's point is literally to be a beautiful bride. Right? Isn't that a little bit ironic? Paul's point is, you are going to be a beautiful bride. And we need to learn how to be a beautiful bride together. Because here's the thing, marriage is not eternal. Also in our premarital counseling, we always bring this up. In Matthew 22, Jesus is teaching and the Sadducees come to Jesus and they are those who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they ask him this question, they they propose this scenario where it's like this wife had a husband and her husband died leaving no kids and in that culture there was this thing called Leverite marriage where the brother would take over to produce offspring. Thank God that doesn't happen today. Uh, And uh, we left that one behind, right? Uh, And uh, that, so, so brother came, no offspring, seven times. Which is her husband in the resurrection from the dead? So what? what the Sadducees ask, right? And this is where they go push each other into the bushes and laugh because they're like, ah, we caught Jesus. And he says, you understand neither the power of God nor the scriptures. 
For in heaven, in the new heavens, new earth, they neither give in marriage or are given in marriage. Marriage is not eternal. Jesus says marriage is not eternal. So if we make marriage the most important thing about us, we're missing out on the most important thing in the universe. To not have marriage in this life does not mean you've missed out on the most important thing, despite what our culture would tell you. Jesus is the most important thing. And His love for His bride, the church. Marriage is not eternal. 1 Corinthians 7, 29, Paul says this. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Right? Other translations would say, uh, those who are married should act as though they're not married. He doesn't mean like get divorced and stop loving your wife, right? That's why he says, nevertheless, love your wife, right? We can't disobey another part of scripture to obey this part of scripture. But what he's saying is, you cannot weight this with eternal significance. It's not there. It's a temporary relationship. Whitney and I's relationship is temporary, not eternal. But you know what is eternal? Our relationship as brother and sister in Christ. So if the way in which we function in marriage diminishes our relationship as brother and sister in Christ, we're doing it wrong. We have to do that first. That's the primary. So that we can love our spouse as well. The only way to love your spouse well is to love Jesus more. To recognize that more. And the only way for us to be a community that has strong marriages and affirms the dignity and value and worth of single folks that are a part of our church body is to not value marriage above Jesus and his church. To not value that more than we value one another in this body. We need to value those things that scripture calls us to. My favorite moment in a wedding is when the groom first sees his bride. It's my absolute favorite moment. And most of the time, guys are trying to hold it together, but then they just lose it. If you guys were at Rome and Laura's wedding, he really lost it. It was great. It was great. It's my favorite moment. And not just because it reminds me of me losing it at my wedding, right? Actually, I was good in the wedding. The rehearsal is when I lost it. Still, I can remember the music and all those things, but it reminds me not of that primarily, but it reminds me of this, which is coming for us as a church. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. The bride of Christ, 
his church coming down and Jesus awaiting. And why I love that moment in a wedding is because I imagine what the Lord Jesus will look like when he sees you, his bride, coming beautifully dressed for him, coming to spend eternity together with our Lord and Savior. His joy, His excitement at seeing us. The way in which He has laid down His life for you and finally gets to experience the joy of our union together. That anticipation is what I wait for. Just a few chapters earlier in Revelation, it says this, And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all His servants, all who fear Him, from the least to the greatest. Then I heard again what sounded like a shout of a vast crowd and the roar of a mighty ocean, waves of, or cr- the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to Him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. We want to be a beautiful bride. So you know what we need to do? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Encourage one another to love and good deeds. For the good deeds are the fine linen that we will wear before Jesus. Metaphorically speaking, obviously. That we need to learn how to be a good bride together. See what he says? He doesn't say, blessed are those who have great marriages. Great marriage is a blessing from God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to minimize marriage, but put it in its proper place. He says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The greatest marriage will not even compare to the moment of the wedding feast of the Lamb where we gather together with our Lord and Savior. Friends, you are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You're invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus has come for his bride. He laid down his life for her. Dying on a cross for their sins. For our sins. So that we could be made holy and blameless, as Paul says. Without spot or blemish. Come radiant and pure because of the purity of Jesus. And be welcomed home where God will dwell with his people, where he will be near to us, where there will be no more need for sun because the glory of Jesus will shine brightly, where there will be no more need for hierarchy and relationship like that because we will be together, the bride of Christ, equal before the Lord together, where we will eat and drink and be merry for all eternity together at the epic long dinner table at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus won't erase you. He won't abuse you. He won't abandon you. He won't destroy you. 
He brings only love for you. And together, let us be the bride of Christ, spurring one another on to holiness so that Jesus can present us to himself pure and radiant. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now praying your blessing upon us. Lord, we need you. There's a lot of hard things in this passage on how we, how we live this out. What does it look like? All of those things, Lord, those are all challenging for us to figure out. And we need your spirit to be at work in our community. That we would love one another, submit to one another, grow together. So that we would be the bride of Christ together. Jesus, would you make us a beautiful bride? And would you come for us? Lord Jesus, we are tired of waiting. Would you come for us? Jesus, in the meantime, help us to love one another well. Help wives and husbands.